as you can see, there's an exhibition of the book bindings of Margaret Armstrong, perhaps, probably, America's best known book designer, certainly the best known designer of book bindings. There's an exhibition brochure that you might like to take after the lecture and spend a few minutes at least with the show, which was curated by a graduate student at the University of Virginia, Sarah Hagland, and celebrates a gift to Rare Book School of about 350 Margaret Armstrong bindings in superb condition given to us by a Connecticut collector, Linda Wilson. Marianne O'Brien Malkin has been connected with Rare Book School from the beginning. That is to say, since 1983, when Rare Book School began in New York City. She formally attended Rare Book School classes in 1983 and for several years thereafter. Then and since then, she has been one of our principal ambassadors, always in residence at Rare Book School for at least some time during the several weeks during which we are open for business each year. Her presence enriches the school. Many of you here will remember A.B. Bookman's Weekly, the magazine carrying bookseller ads for used and rare books wanted or for sale with front matter of interest to the overlapping worlds of used and rare book selling, research librarianship, and book collecting. Marianne Malkin's late husband, Saul M. Malkin, founded A.B. Bookman's Weekly and edited it for a generation. The Malkins sold A.B. in the early 70s, and it continued under the direction of Jacob Chernovsky until 1999 when it ceased operation, superseded by the internet. AP Bookman's Weekly made its debut in 1948 as the Antiquarian Bookman. It was published by the R.R. Bowker Company as a spin-off of the so-called back half of Publishers Weekly. It included dealer's lists of book wanted and a few single copies of books for sale from anyone. The front matter of Antiquarian Bookman consisted of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians, and it also included a gossip column written by Jacob Blank, providing news, musings, and gossip about the trade. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual lecture in honor of Saul Malkin's contribution to the Antiquarian book trade. Michael Winship gave the first Saul M. Malkin Lecture in Bibliography under Book Arts Press Auspices at Columbia University in December 1985. In time for Saul Malkin to congratulate him on his performance, the Malkin himself was too ill to attend. Indeed, Saul, Saul Malkin died in 1986, a few months after Winship had delivered the lecture. Malkin lecturers over the years have included Nicholas Barker, William Barlow, Robert Darnton, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldschmidt, Catherine Kies-Lieb, Paul Needham, William S. Reese, Kenneth Rendell, Bernard M. Rosenthal, Anthony Rhoda, Justin Schiller, Roger Stoddard, G. Thomas Tansel, and Marjorie Wynn. I know there are quite a few people in the audience who know every single one of them. It's quite a list. Our speaker this evening is Selby Kiefer, 
head of the books and manuscripts department and senior vice president at Sotheby's New York, where he has worked for a very long time. I'm proud to be able to report that he was a student in the Rare Book Program at Columbia University in the class of 1983. You have only to put Selby Kiefer into Google or one of the other internet search engines to see how well known he is as a commentator on the rare, on the rare book scene, not only on the Antiques Roadshow, but also on various C-SPAN and other documentaries. The title of his lecture tonight is Dear Sir or Madam, I Have an Old Book or Not Everything in Your Attic is Gold. It's a great pleasure to introduce the 2002 Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecturer in Bibliography. Legal Disclaimer. The following address does not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Sotheby's Incorporated, its affiliated companies, board of directors, management, or employees, especially the members of our public relations department. <laughs> Sotheby's is dedicated to providing all of its clients with an informative and empowering service experience, regardless of the historical significance or commercial value of their potential consignments. I hope you'll all forgive me this odd posture. Good evening. As Terry said, my name is Selby Kiefer, although with a nod of acknowledgement to Deckard Turner, whose personalized note cards inspired me to begin charting such information, I have been addressed in writing by at least 70 different appellations. Some of these have been near misses. Kirby Kiefer, Selby Kaiser, Selby Piper, and inevitably, Sotheby Kiefer. <laughs> Others have been considerably wider of the mark. Tony Cooper and Kelsey Rafer among them. <laughs> My own favorite, which I've been denominated more than once, is Selby Killer, <laughs> because of the totally unwarranted association it gives me with Jerry Lee Lewis. Of course, most of my correspondence comes properly addressed, and most of it seems to have a rational motivation and purpose. But some of the inquiries, like some of my curious cognomens, seem slightly a kilter, although usually, and I do not say always, a kernel of lucidity, like a single syllable of my name, can be discerned in the final product. A surprising number of people contact auction houses for bibliographical or historical information, but a far greater number are motivated not by bibliophily, but by rapacity. These are the compulsively optimistic bastard children of Van Allen Bradley, searching for gold in their attics as well as in their basements, garages, community library sales, local flea markets, and, not infrequently, trash cans and dumpsters. The routine in any pursuit is to be despised, including the pursuit of literary lucre. For that reason, the most common queries that we receive are also the most annoying and the least intriguing. And I don't simply mean family Bibles, 19th century school texts, runs of National Geographic, shoeboxes full of book plates, Reader's Digest condensed books, really old books from the 1930s, and the works of Booth Tarkington either. These are the inevitable flotsam and jetsam of life on the ocean of books. They can no more be avoided than can suede dust on an original Roy Crafter's reverse calf binding or Carl Sandburg's signature in any copy of any lifetime edition of Chicago Poems. They are, to torture my analogy to my erroneous names a bit further, the Shelby Kiefers of curious and tedious inquiries. 
But more to the point, correspondents with property like this are not, for the most part, true believers. A few of them are hopeful, but at heart, they know what to expect. They are fodder for the question and answer column of the Miss Lonely Hearts of the main Antiques Digest set. And they know it. So a factual answer, whether especially gentle or not, is usually sufficient to turn away their search for worth without engendering any wrath. You're very fortunate that you have your grandparents' Bible. A lot of people would like to still have a family relic like that. But unfortunately, it's the sort of book that looks more impressive and important than it really is. The heavy recessed covers, the scores of engravings and maps, the elaborate chromolithographed genealogy pages are all absolutely typical of household Bibles from the second half of the 19th century. It's just the way Bibles were made then. They were as common as the thin papered limp Morocco bound editions that are the norm today. True believers also know what they have. They know that it is important, they know that it is authentic, they know that it is desirable, and they know that it is valuable. Often they know that they have the only one of its kind, or the only surviving one of its kind, or at the very least, the only surviving one of its kind still in private hands. As often as not, there is some oral tradition grown into family myth about the discovery and preservation of the item. A Miss Lonely Hearts inquiry is almost always just business. But for true believers, the objects of their inquiries often underpin their entire belief systems. Frequently, they can more easily conceive of a new world order than they can accept that their article is not of auctionable value. There are some books that the two types of gold seekers hold in common, including Ulysses S. Grant's personal memoirs. And Miss Lonely Hearts might call and write and state, I have a copy of U.S. Grant's memoirs that appears to be signed by Grant. Do you think it might be valuable? To this, it's easy to respond that Grant's memoirs, while an important and collectible book, is not especially valuable because it was printed in such large numbers. Moreover, the book was published posthumously, and all copies bear a facsimile inscription in Grant's hand. Depending on the mood and interest of the inquirer, we might go on to discuss Grant's heroic struggle to complete his autobiography before succumbing to throat cancer, the huge popularity of the book, and the enormous royalties paid to his widow by its publisher, Mark Twain. Our response might even continue to detail allied objects that have been valuable enough for Sotheby's to sell. To sell. A $150,000 royalty check payable to Mrs. Grant from the Charles L. Webster Company, which we sold in 1986 for $4,000. The pen that Grant used to write the memoirs, together with a note of authentication by his daughter-in-law, Elizabeth, which we sold in 2000 for $9,000 and a set of the memoirs inscribed not by Grant but by Clemens to a Mr. Ward Foote, which we sold last year for $25,000. A true believer has no interest in this sort of ancillary information. He is also more circumspect about revealing his treasure. Don't expect to be given an author or title until the second page of a letter or the fifth minute of a conversation. Hello, I have a very old and important piece of American history. That sounds intriguing. What do you have? My mother's grandfather was a volunteer in the Indiana Infantry during the Civil War. Yes. And after that, he was elected to the Indiana State Legislature. Yes. And he had met General Grant during the war, and later Grant gave him a copy of his book that he signed for my great-grandfather. And even though the front cover is off, all the pages are there, and it must be a pretty special thing. Is the title of the book Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant? Yeah, that's it. Well, actually... That book was published posthumously, so it would be impossible for what? Grant's memoirs was published posthumously. No, it was published in New York. <laughs> I mean, 
it was published after Grant died. And so, what do you mean published after Grant died? He wrote it, didn't he? Well, he certainly wrote it. Now, it's prudent to pause here and insert a conciliatory comment while the caller is still relatively friendly and rational. In fact, Grant's writing was so good that many people assumed he used a ghostwriter, maybe even Mark Twain, who was his friend and publisher. And it's still considered one of the great military treatises ever written, ranked with Caesar's comment. So what do you mean he was dead? Look, my mother gave me this book when she moved into a retirement home. She got it from her father, who got it from his father, who got it from Grant. Here you consider pointing out that although Shakespeare is dead, his plays are still being printed. But think better of it. Do you have the books there with you? Yes. And the inscription is in the first volume? Yes. And it's inscribed to your great-grandfather? Yes. It's not inscribed? These volumes are dedicated to the American soldier and sailor? Well, yeah, that's what it says, but that dedication appears in all copies of the book. It's just a souvenir reproduction. It's a reproduction, that's right, of Grant's writing, that's right. So if it's a reproduction of Grant's writing, that means he had to write an original somewhere, right? And how do you know I don't have the original? You're right. There had to be an original at some point. And if you had said that the inscription was framed or pasted into a book or something else, I might think there was some chance that you had Grant's actual dedication. But if the inscription is on a page that's part of the book, it can't be real. Besides, if Grant had signed it, don't you think he would have personalized it a bit, maybe used your grandfather's name or referred to the fighting Hoosiers? Look, this book has been in my family for over 100 years. I don't doubt it, but Grant's been dead for 117. As I said, it's a great book, but it's not signed by Grant. I know the inscription looks real, but it's actually listed in the list of illustrations at the front of the volume. I actually discovered this myself a couple of years ago, and it's a fun fact of last resort to trot out. Well, how much is it worth then? With a cover detached? Probably less than $50. $50? I'm calling Christie's. <laughs> Do you have their number? Grant's memoirs is a staple of disappointed treasure hunters, ranking somewhat ahead of Abraham Lincoln's sympathy letter to Mrs. Bixby, but lagging well behind the 4 January 1800 issue of the Ulster County Gazette. Some of you here tonight will recognize this as the issue that carried the news of George Washington's death. Now, George Washington died on December 14, 1799, and while Ulster County is home to the city of Kingston, New York's first state capital, and was undoubtedly a more prominent part of the Union in the late 18th century than it is here in the early 21st, it still took some time for news to travel there from Virginia. So the Ulster County Gazette was not the first newspaper to report Washington's death, nor was its coverage of the event particularly detailed or insightful. It was, however, the newspaper that was chosen, who knows why, to be reproduced as a souvenir for the 1876 Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. The Library of Congress claims that among the tens of thousands of facsimiles in circulation, only two copies of the original January 4, 1800 issue are known, its own and one at the Antiquarian, pardon me, the American Antiquarian Society. Some callers can be disarmed if they are asked as soon as the phrase old newspaper is uttered, oh, do you have a January 4, 1800 Ulster County Gazette? If they don't, the question is immediately forgotten, but if they do, the auction house's credibility is immediately established. Ironically, of course, auction house specialists are treasure hunters as well, treasure hunters of the mind. We're always speculating about what monumental book or manuscript might walk through the door, 
and what it might be worth if one did. A former colleague of mine used to rank a genuine Ulster County Gazette on her list of coveted items. Can you imagine, she'd asked, it would be worth an absolute bomb. That was her term, not mine. But I wonder, can the value of an article derive principally from its pervasiveness in facsimile versions? I used to painstakingly review with Gazette owners the points that distinguish the souvenir copies of the Washington obituary issue from the true first printing. Some of the points could be rather frustrating to try to convey. Presumably no one here tonight would have any difficulty differentiating between a date line set in upper and lower case from one set in full and small caps. But if your typographic knowledge doesn't extend much beyond the concepts of big letters and little letters, and if just for fun the words under examination include some O's and C's, suddenly it's not so simple. But I don't fret anymore. I already know that the client has a reproduction, and I'm just trying to convince him or her of the fact. So if we find ourselves at cross-purposes with fonts or trying to determine the column that the phrase Treaty of Amity appears in, I now just say in all good conscience, chances are overwhelming that you have a souvenir reproduction. But even if you do have an original issue, chances are that the value would still be pretty modest. At the end of the day, you have a report three weeks late that George Washington died. Would you want to buy it? On the other hand, many people would want to buy President Lincoln's condolence letter to Lydia Bixby, should the original ever surface, the possibility of which would presuppose that there is an original to be found. And I don't mean by that that Lincoln's holograph may have been destroyed. I mean that there is no clear consensus of opinion that the 16th president actually wrote to the widow Bixby of Boston on 21 November 1864, recognizing her as the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle and acknowledging how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine which should beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. Fortunately, since no autograph or even signed clerical version of the Bixby letter has ever been known to exist, there are no facsimiles of the Bixby letter to beguile treasure hunters and bewilder auction houses. Unfortunately, there are plenty of purported facsimiles, to use the word of Roy P. Basler, the editor of the indispensable collected works of Abraham Lincoln, Basler coined the term because since at least 1891, reproductions of the Bixby letter in an imitation of Lincoln's hands have been in circulation. The text of the letter is known only through its publication in the Boston Transcript for November 25, 1864. But just to cloud the issue a bit further, the transcript text was not printed from the letter sent to Mrs. Bixby, but from a copy sent by the White House to the office of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts, the office that had first brought the case of Mrs. Bixby and her five slain sons to the president's attention and requested that he send a personal note of sympathy to her. Further complicating the case is the fact that evidently only two of Mrs. Bixby's sons were killed in action. Charles and Oliver, both of the Massachusetts Infantry. Henry Bixby was honorably discharged from the Massachusetts Infantry less than a month after Lincoln is supposed to have consoled his mother for his death. Edward of the Massachusetts Heavy Artillery had deserted nearly two years before. And George, also an infantryman, was captured by rebel forces the same, are you allowed to say rebel in Virginia? <laughs> was captured by rebel forces the same day that his brother Oliver was killed. Subsequent reports about George Bixby are contradictory and inconclusive. Some indicate that he deserted to the Confederacy, others that he died in a prisoner of war camp, still others that he survived until Appomattox and then emigrated to Cuba. 
Late in the 19th century, a rival of P.T. Barnum began exhibiting what he claimed was Lincoln's original letter to Mrs. Bixby in his cabinet of miscellaneous curiosities on East 14th Street in New York City. By 1891, Huber's museum was selling keepsake versions of the manuscript on display there, and at least two other variant souvenirs based on Huber's personal spurious original were in manufacture shortly afterward. The trouble is that once these souvenirs had changed hands or been passed down to a younger generation, people began to think of them not as purported facsimiles, but as the purported original. It's amazing that treasure hunters who can seem so slow to grasp a simple point meant to burst their false hopes can nevertheless immediately understand the implication of the fact that the original Bixby letter has never been found. What is the obvious conclusion drawn by everyone who owns a purported facsimile? The original is found, and I have it. Notwithstanding that George Bixby may have sailed to Cuba, the Bixby family seems to have been remarkably widely traveled, considering the number of places that the original has thought to have been discovered in. From Washington, D.C. to Washington State, in my experience at Sotheby's, and at every, virtually every port of call of the Antiques Roadshow. John Carter wrote of collectors who always see their geese for swans, but a collector who tries to turn a binder's error into a point of priority is nothing compared to a true believer in search of value. Even the most egregious sign of a rank reproduction, an oval vignette portrait of Lincoln at the head of his letter to Mrs. Bixby, for instance, is seized on as evidence of authenticity, as though the great emancipator was an egoist in the fashion of Haven O'More, who had his biographical statement in the auction catalog of the Garden Limited collection illustrated with a heroic bronze bust of himself. Could the original Bixby letter be out there waiting to be rediscovered? I should be the last person to say no. A long time ago, before I entered the world of book and manuscript commerce, I wanted to be a rare book librarian. One reason I wanted to be a rare book librarian was because I thought it was unlikely in the job market of the early 1980s that I could get a tenure-track position on a university English faculty, which is what I then thought I really wanted to do. So after getting a master's degree in English, I packed for library school instead of pursuing a doctorate. But while I was an English student, I had the chance to learn a fair bit about Mark Twain, who was then my favorite author. I had learned that the second half of the autographed manuscript of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn was preserved at the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library, the gift of a Buffalo lawyer and collector named James Fraser Gluck, who had solicited the manuscript directly from the author. I'd also learned that the first half of the manuscript was lost. So said Walter Blair, the eminent Clemens scholar and author of Mark Twain and Huck Finn. Lewis Budd reached the same conclusion in his introduction to a facsimile edition of the Buffalo Manuscript. The Mark Twain Project's critical edition of Huckleberry Finn, edited by Professor Blair, Victor Fisher, and others, stated in its textual introduction, no typescript survives, nor does the 50,000-word manuscript written between 1876 and late, late 1882. Only a major portion of the 70,000-word manuscript written in the summer of 1883 is extant. There was good reason for this scholarly consensus, Clemens's own words. On November 12, 1885, he responded to Gluck's request for a manuscript by writing, I will comply as far as I can with the greatest pleasure. That is, to the extent of 50% of the manuscript book, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Half of the Finn book is extant because that half was written after the typewriter came into general use. Before that, it was my custom, and everybody else's in my line, no doubt, 
to have my books copied with a pen and shipped the original to the printers, who never returned it. As soon as the book was printed, the copy made by the amanuensis was no longer valuable and was destroyed. It was only made in the first place as a precautionary measure. Between the writing of the first and last halves of Huck Finn, five or seven years elapsed. The first half was copied by the pen, and when the book was finally finished, the original of that half probably went to the printers and was destroyed. But the last half was copied by a typewriter, and the copy, that copy, went to the printer instead of the less readable original, and thus the original was preserved. Now, if the text of the letter isn't conclusive enough on its own, harken back a few minutes to our discussion of personal memoirs of U.S. Grant, and recall at that period that Mark Twain was a publisher as well as a writer, so when he described the mechanics of 19th century publication, he knew whereof he wrote. Anyway, there is a point to this long digression. About a decade ago, my then colleague Jay Dillon answered the office phone and was told by a woman in California that she had found the manuscript of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. She found it in an old family trunk in her attic. Jay sensed that this was too good to be true, that the caller had a facsimile he hadn't encountered before, or that she was a treasure hunter using the word manuscript to mean Grosset and Dunlap reprint. So he covered the mouthpiece of the phone and called over the cubicle wall. Selby, where's the manuscript of Huckleberry Finn? I called back, the Buffalo Public Library. Jay uncupped the mouthpiece and began to disabuse the woman of her notion, when for some reason I added, but it's only the second half. The fallout, which some of you are already undoubtedly familiar with, is that the caller was a great niece of James Fraser Glock. She had inherited the truck trunk several years before, but had explored its contents only recently. She really did have the 665-leaf autograph manuscript of the first half of Huck Finn, including Clemens's celebrated authorial notice warning readers against searching for either motive or plot in the narrative. Found with the manuscript was a subsequent letter from Clemens to Glock explaining that the first portion of the holograph hadn't been thrown out after all. The rediscovered manuscript came to Sotheby's, where my colleagues and I had the great privilege of examining it. But we did not sell it. A settlement was negotiated between the finder and her sister and the Buffalo Public Library to reunite the two manuscript halves on the banks of Lake Erie. And if you think we were disappointed about not having an auction, Imagine how the editors of the Mark Twain Project's edition of Huckleberry Finn felt when 300 pages of textual apparatus and editorial commentary were suddenly and immediately rendered obsolete. So, finally, here's my point. With that experience, I should believe that there's a possibility that Lincoln's autograph of the Bixby letter could turn up, but I don't. For one thing, I'm among those who think the text was probably written by one of Lincoln's private secretaries, John Hay. The atheist activist uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare was also a proponent of Hayes' authorship, just to show you how far bibliographical issues can spread, because she claimed that as an unbeliever, as she characterized Lincoln, he would not have written that he prayed that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of Mrs. Bixby's bereavement. What could turn up, but which never has been offered to me at least, is a copy of the 25 November 1864 Boston transcript that first published the Bixby text as the de facto Adidio Princeps of one of Lincoln's most eloquent statements, or famous statements, perhaps I should say, the newspaper would certainly be significant, desirable, and valuable. And I'm not contradicting myself by calling the Bixby letter a statement by Lincoln just because I think John Hay wrote it. 
After all, I catalog a copy of the 1961 inaugural address under John F. Kennedy, not Ted Sorensen. If nothing else, a copy of the Bixby issue of the Boston Transcript would provide a bit of respite from the flood of phony New York heralds of 15 April 1865, all of which announce on brittle late 19th century wood pulp paper the assassination of President Lincoln. These are nearly as common as the spurious playbills for the performance of our American cousin attended by both Lincoln and John Wilkes Booth. There are actually two authentic issues of the 14 April 1865 performance of Tom Taylor's comedy at Ford's Theater, the standard announcement of the benefit performance in Last Night of Miss Laura Keene, and the second but more desirable issue that incorporates the words of the song, Honor to Our Soldiers. This patriotic chorus was added to the program after President Lincoln announced his intention to attend Miss Keene's farewell performance and was intended to be sung at the interval. Most treasure hunters have a bogus printing of the Ford Theater playbill that announces, this evening the performance will be honored by the pre presence of President Lincoln. All of the bills with this legends are souvenirs printed after the president's assassination. More likely to surface than the original Bixby letter is another genuine copy of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. After all, five holograph versions are known already, three of which the president wrote out simply as souvenirs. The other two are so-called drafts which Lincoln gave to his private secretaries John Hay and John Nicolay. Both the Hay and Nicolay copies are today in the Library of Congress, which uh, sounds like an opportunity for collection rationalization, perhaps. Lincoln frequently made contributions of signed photographs, sentiments, and manuscripts for sale at various fundraisers of the U.S. Sanitary Commission and like-minded union organizations. So there is every possibility that a sixth autograph copy is sitting out there unrecognized like the Milton and Cromwell of Gray's country churchyard. The version that gets brought to our attention on a nearly weekly basis was predicated on a charitable act of Lincoln's. At the request of Colonel Alexander Bliss, he wrote out, complete with signature, title, and date of delivery, the text of the Gettysburg Address for reproduction in a work titled Autograph Leaves of Our Country's Authors. Autograph Leaves was published and sold for the benefit of an 1864 Sanitary Commission Fair in Baltimore. Fortunately for all concerned, Lincoln wrote the Bliss Gettysburg Address, now preserved in the Lincoln Room of the White House, on the rectos of three sheets of paper about eight by ten inches. Since nobody wants a multi-sided souvenir, this has been most commonly reproduced in bastardized format, two parallel columns on a sheet of paper about 14 by 10 inches. Most treasure hunters seem able to grasp the point that people do not write this way. Faced with a sheet of paper this size, 99 out of 100 martyred presidents would either orient the sheet of paper vertically or fold it to make a bifolium and then write on the first and second or first and third thus formed pages. Those who don't comprehend this can often be convinced by being given the line endings, including hyphenation, for each of the 41 lines of text. For this purpose, I keep my own copy very near the phone. As a final resort, for our own satisfaction, if nothing else, we can ask if the paper of the address is really old, sort of thick and crinkly and often very brittle. When the treasure hunter breathlessly confirms this, they can be told that such paper is invariably the signpost of the phony parchment paper that so many famous documents are reproduced on. Looks and feels authentically old, their envelopes say. 
and based on the frequency with which such reproductions are mistaken for the real deal, it's an accurate characterization. I sometimes wonder what demonstrates greater hubris on the part of treasure hunters, the assumption that they have an authentic copy of one of the most important documents in American history, or the assumption that whatever old scraps of paper they have, printed or manuscript, are of interest. C-SPAN 2's Book TV has covered a couple of our book and manuscript auctions, and these programs are always guaranteed to cause a spike in the latter type of inquiry. Dear Mr. Selby Kiefer, I saw on TV the auction of very old books belonging to Sotheby's. I have a very old book that looks similar. Dear Mr. Kiefer, please allow me to introduce myself. I live in Corpus Christi, Texas. I was fortunate enough to catch your show one night where you auctioned off different kinds of books. Well, sir, I have a book that was entered according to the Act of Congress in the year 1892 by Mass, Prowl, and Kirkpatrick in the office of the Librarian of Congress at Washington. The name of this book is Scenes from Every Land, Over 500 Photographs. Then follows an exhaustive review of the contents of the book. The letter continues, these are just a few examples of the material found in the book. What I'd like to know, if this book is worth something, and how do I go about getting it appraised? If you can help with this, I would greatly appreciate it. I realize now I've been speaking for some time and my enunciation may be getting faulty, but I just want to clarify that the closing phrase of that letter was not, I would greatly appreciate it, but I would greatly appreciate it. When constructing this talk, I read these and a few other recent examples of such correspondence to my wife. She observed, well, at least they all seem sincere. My wife is much kinder than I am. At the other end of the scale are would-be consigners who want to describe their Gutenberg Bible or their copy of the Bill of Rights or their Audubon Birds of America, Macmillan, 1937. But no object excites the passion of treasure hunters or costs auction houses so much time or promises both parties so great a reward as the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration has become the holy grail of flea market pickers and dumpster divers, with good reason. In 1991, Sotheby's famously sold a newly discovered copy of the Declaration uh, of Independence, the Dunlap Broadside, for $2,240,000. In 2000, we resold the same copy for $8,140,000. It is now the highlight of Freedom's Journey, a traveling exhibition touring the nation's presidential libraries. And this copy of the Declaration was discovered in the back of a frame purchased for $4 at an Adamstown, Pennsylvania flea market. Let me forestall the cynics among you. Rumors have circulated since 1991 that the frame story could not possibly be true. The story, that is, that the consigner, a Philadelphia stock analyst and collector of old stocks and bonds, bought a dilapidated painting at Renninger's flea market in 1989 because he thought he could salvage the frame for some of his own collection. But he didn't keep the frame because it was beyond repair. But he did find secreted within it a copy of the Declaration of Independence, which he assumed was a reproduction of some kind, probably from the 1876 centennial. But he was enough of a collector that he hung on to it, put it in his rec room until a couple of years later, a collecting colleague saw it, told him he ought to have it looked at by an expert, which he did. The fact is, no specific alternative provenance has ever been proposed, and at least two regular dealers at Renningers have said that they could well have been the vendors of the frame-hidden declaration. 
What is it about the Declaration that inspires so many calls and letters? First, it's recognizable. Second, it's famous, which is not the same thing. Third, it's a lottery number that hit once and has every reason to hit again. A bit of background. On July 4, 1776, the Continental Congress approved, following three days of debate and a little bit of revision, a declaration endorsing Richard Henry Lee's resolution of the 7th of June that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. Immediately after approving the Declaration, the Congress ordered that the committee appointed to prepare the Declaration superintend and correct the press, that copies of the Declaration be sent to the various assemblies, conventions, and committees or councils of safety, and to the several commanding officers of the Continental Troops, that it be proclaimed in each of the United States and at the head of the Army. George Washington received a copy of the Dunlap broadside on the 6th of July while he was in New York organizing Continental resistance to the looming British assault on that city. And his general orders of July 9th directed that at 6 o'clock that day, his troops were to be assembled and the Declaration of Congress read with an audible voice. But go back a couple days earlier to the 4th of July. That evening, a manuscript copy of the Declaration was taken to the printing shop of John Dunlap, a short walk from the Pennsylvania State House. Dunlap was the printer and publisher of one of Philadelphia's most prominent newspapers, the Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertiser, and also the printer to Congress. In fact, 11 years later, he would print the first uh, edition of the U.S. Constitution. Dunlap set the text as a broadside, took at least one proof, a fragment of which survives at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, and started working on finished copies that evening. Finished copies were finally pulled and delivered to Congress the following morning, the 5th of July, and the process of distribution then began. The number of copies printed is uncertain, but it must have been relatively substantial. Various evidence makes me think it was probably between 800 and 1,000 copies. First, a relatively large number of copies are known to survive. Including fragmentary copies, 25 are known. An elaborate census of the Dunlap broadsides undertaken by the Library of Congress and published during the bicentennial found just 21 copies, so they have continued to turn up. The rate of attrition for broadsides is typically very high, so 25 survivors must represent a very large initial group. For instance, the second broadside declaration to be printed after Dunlap's was issued in New York by John Holt on the 9th of July. We know that the New York Committee of Safety meeting in White Plains ordered that 500 copies be printed and distributed throughout the state, but only two copies of this edition are known today. Further evidence for a large run is that Dunlap used four stocks of paper, and because of a minute shift of the final line of text, which was Dunlap's own imprint, it's clear that he was not taking sheets at random, but exhausting one supply before moving on to the next. So, it's not surprising when the news broke, first about the discovery, of the flea market declaration, and then about its subsequent sale for more than $2 million, that we were inundated with calls and correspondence from people who thought that they, too, had found a copy. What's a little more surprising is that virtually none of these treasure hunters had even a facsimile of the Dunlap broadside. Almost unanimously, 
They were describing facsimiles of the commemorative calligraphic copy of the Declaration that was created by a Congressional Resolve of July 19th. The engrossed Declaration, the text which is most familiar in most people's uh, minds, I suppose, was undoubtedly copied from a Dunlap broadside, and it really had nothing to do with the United States declaring its independence. In spite of the famous painting by John Trumbull, there was no signing ceremony either. Although many congressional delegates signed on a single day, August 2nd, 1776, others simply signed the document as the opportunity arose. Also, because of the expiration of some congressional terms, some of the men who voted for independence never signed the Declaration, while other representatives signed it without having been in Congress to vote for its adoption. In fact, five years passed before the last of the 56 signatures, Thomas McKean of Delaware, was obtained. So when the petitions started pouring in, I have one of those, I have one of those, and even I have two of those, as well as I have one of those and the Gettysburg Address and the Bill of Rights. They were mostly easy to deflect. Does your copy have the word unanimous in the heading? Yes. Does it appear to be handwritten? Yes. Does it have a group of 56 signatures at the bottom? Yes. Or occasionally the more honest, well, I haven't counted them, but there's a lot of names. Then I'm afraid you have a reproduction of the unique signed copy of the Declaration, which is in the National Archives. This response brooks no buts. But it really is handwritten. It even has corrections. But it has been in my family since the Revolution. But the local police department tested a corner of the paper and said it's from 1776. <laughs> but I found it behind an old picture frame. <laughs> The real complication comes because in 1823, Secretary of State John Quincy Adams commissioned a facsimile edition of the calligraphic signed declaration. 200 copies were printed on vellum and distributed to surviving signers, various dignitaries, state and territorial governments, selected colleges and universities. Only about 30 of these vellum copies are presently located, and recently they've been fetching, implausibly it seems to me, for a facsimile commemorating a commemorative document in excess of $200,000. So, this necessitates a second round of questions regarding size and imprint and material. It doesn't help either that in the early 1970s, R.R. Donnelly of Chicago produced a brilliant facsimile of a copy of the Dunlap broadside now owned by the city of Dallas. Most people have a copy of a severely reduced souvenir version of the calligraphic declaration that is widely available at historic sites for two or three dollars. Still, some folks can't be dissuaded. In the aftermath of the 1991 auction, I had someone fly to New York from Jordan with one of these facsimiles. I politely explained what he had, but avoided any discussion of value. However, he pressed me on this point. I looked at his two bodyguards and figured it wouldn't hurt to embellish a bit. It's probably worth about five dollars, I told him. Sometimes we are asked to do the impossible. I had a call from a fellow once who told me that when he and his wife had their bedroom repainted, she had lost his copy of the Declaration. I readied my usual response for treasure hunters who claim that the flea market declaration is really their property. But this guy didn't pursue that course. Who wondered if Sotheby's could recommend a psychic who could help his wife determine where she had misplaced the document? I replied that while we could not recommend a psychic, 
we would certainly be interested in speaking with them again if they could find one independently who could uncover the declaration. Very recently, a couple flew up from Florida, despite my urging them not to, because a lawyer friend of someone they knew at a bank told them that what they had might be really valuable. There was a facsimile of the engrossed declaration, albeit more or less full size. I showed them a reproduction of the Dunlap broadside and went painstakingly through all the points of distinction. At the end of my discourse, the wife looked up and asked me what would have to change to make their copy valuable. <laughs> now I really felt out of my depth. Isn't the transformation of particle matter really a topic better addressed by Stephen Hawking? So, why do we do it? Why don't we just print up some Mencken-esque postcard stating, we regret that we are unable to evaluate or otherwise discuss your property. Because there is sometimes wheat among the chaff, and it's good to remember that. Last winter, one of our Philadelphia representatives said she had seen an interesting set of Mark Twain's works signed by him in each volume. World-weary, I replied, oh, a small green cloth set with each volume inscribed and signed, this is the authorized uniform edition of all of my works, Mark Twain. She admitted that it was, but added that it belonged to a descendant of Clemens's patron, Henry Huddleston Rogers, and that in addition to the facsimile inscription, each volume had a signed autograph aphorism by Clemens written on the front end paper. We sold the set last month for $90,000. And not all of the wheat that we help harvest ends up being sold. I've mentioned the Huckleberry Finn manuscript, but there was also the set of four autograph notebooks by Walt Whitman that were brought to us in 1995. We were able to determine at the same time that the New York Public Library through another party was trying to purchase them but the notebooks had been missing from the Library of Congress since 1943, and we helped repatriate them. We also indirectly helped turn up a forgotten copy of the Dunlap broadside. In January 1990, we had sold Bradley Martin's copy of the Dunlap Declaration. It included in, we included in the catalog a census of the then-known 23 copies. A client of mine from Portland, Maine, told me shortly after the sale that the Maine Historical Society had an exceptionally large and very fresh copy of the Dunlap broadside. So at the time of the first auction, 1991, of the flea market declaration, I wanted to add the Maine copy to our census, if I could confirm its existence. I spoke with three separate librarians and curators at the Historical Society, and I received from them, like from Peter, three denials. And so our census remained at 24, the additional one being the flea market copy. Well, the behind-the-frame declaration was sold for nearly $2.5 million on June 13, 1991, and on June 14, the Maine Historical Society held a news conference and announced that it had just uncovered a sparkling Dunlap broadside that had been bequeathed to the Historical Society by John S. H. Fogg, bequeathed in 1893. And while we were not offered any legitimate Dunlap broadsides in the wake of these two sales, we were approached about five other 1776 broadside printings, including a previously unrecorded and apparently unique printing by Peter Timothy done in Charleston, South Carolina. Paul Needham and I were able, in fact, to substantially expand and correct, I guess I'm too modest to say supersede, uh, Michael Walsh's Harvard Library Bulletin checklist of contemporary broadside editions of the Declaration of Independence. And this really is an example of the most important role that we play in responding to golden uratic inquiries. 
not to sound too grandiose, the dispersal of knowledge. In fact, most clients we deal with are bright and interested and very grateful for whatever information we can give them, even if that information is that the item they have is, so to speak, more of academic than commercial value. We also deserve some credit for the big sales that we help make, because these are the stories that often spark general public interest in historical books and manuscripts. After all, it was Tom Paine, not an auctioneer, who wrote, what we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. I decided to focus during this discussion on a few representative examples of the sort of gold-in-your-attic queries that we receive, but I wouldn't be providing you the full flavor of the experience if I didn't briefly mention a few of our more exotic inquiries. Like the woman who sent us a copy of a Valley Forge letter signed by George Washington. A typed letter. <laughs> we explained in our reply that typewriters were among those articles in chronic short supply at that bitter winter encampment. Or like the man who claimed to have the birth certificate, pardon me, birth certificate of Helen of Troy. <laughs> he was transferred to us by our colleagues in the antiquities department. <laughs> or the man who had sold the unified field theory and wanted us to auction his solution to the highest bidding free world government. These clients frequently provide visual aids that resemble fourth grade art projects and enclose their correspondence in envelopes carefully marked photos, do not bend, with the word photos invariably apostrophized to make it singular possessive. Every week also brings a couple of Proustian and somewhat disconcerting missives, like the letter we received in 1991 from the Port of Love publishing house, Savannah, Missouri. I am sending you these two original and two desktop published books I have authored among ten since Mother's Day of 1998 under the scheduled divine intervention authority of an anointed numbers 12-6 forerunner prophet, the caliber of Samuel or John the Baptist. They are as authentic and as valuable as the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in Awadi in 1947 by a wandering Arab, as collector's items during the 21st century of the Age of Aquarius, Apocalypse, Disclosure, Global Peace, Enlightenment, led by the two men described in these two desktop books, they will endure longer than the sheepskins upon which Moses authored the five books of the Torah, or longer than the 50, 395 A.D. hand-published copies of the Judaic Christianity Holy Bible ordered by Constantine. I was anointed by God as a genuine number 1216 prophet in 1967 as a royal line of David descendant. Many false prophets, such as Gene Dixon, Hal Lindsey, or Grant R. Jeffries have authored opinions about me in books which God laughs at. I have invested two million bucks in producing my books and now have a bank overdraft of $14. So I'm beginning to raise capital to publish my own books. I am broke until I publish the set of 10 books, including these two after I raise the funds to produce them. Cooperating with me qualifies those who do a special welcome at the gates of heaven when their earth assignment ends. Certainly better than a 10% commission. Thanks for your full cooperation. Deduct your fees from the sale price and send me a check or bank draft for the balance. In a postscript, the author noted that he burned out my computer printer producing these books, so had to hand print this letter. Letters like this can seem interminable, and I'm afraid they often never get finished. Before anyone, 
or perhaps I should say anyone else, can form a similar opinion about this lecture, perhaps I should conclude. Thank you all for your attention.